Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Rosh Hashanah sermon by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. If you've been here for part of the morning, you've heard some Jewish Zen haiku. And you're going to get some more. Wherever you go, there you are, your luggage is, somehow in Detroit. <laughs> Quietly murmured at Shul Saturday morning, Dodgers 5, Reds 3. The original version of that had, was a little bit different, but I modified it for this crowd. These little haikus are silly, but they convey a message succinctly. Now, it's not haiku, but I can get this sermon done in one sentence, and we can continue to musaf. Raise your hand if that's what you're looking for. Hold your ideas lightly so that you can hold others, many others, closely. But let's dig in deeper. I want to start with a heart-wrenching piece of Torah-based wisdom from the luminous Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, a boundary-breaking Orthodox rabbi and philosopher. Tragically, his son JJ was killed in a bicycle accident in Israel some years ago. An incomprehensible personal loss. About a decade into a grief that I know never goes away, barely even wanes, he was teaching rabbis about the second blessing of the Amidah. Baruch ata Hashem mechayeh ha-metim. Blessed are you God who revives the dead. He talked about all the modern ways we attempt to rescue and sanitize that blessing. A blessing which stretches our belief. There's an interpretation that says that it means reviving the deadened parts of our soul. Or that it means we give a person a version of life, a version of forever life to departed loved ones by living out their values. We interpret that blessing every which way we can, aside from the straightforward way it was probably intended. We pray to an omnipotent God who is capable of anything, including bringing those who are dead back to life. Rabbi Greenberg, an enlightened philosopher, a person of contemporary science and a person of faith, he said that when he says these words, he's not praying for the eternal life of J.J.'s soul. He's not praying for a metaphor. He prays with every fiber of his being to the creator of the universe that God actually bring J.J. back from the dead. Why? Because as Rabbi Yitz said, you can't hug a soul. You can't embrace a metaphor. I want him back. His body. His most real self. The only thing I can touch.
Let's be clear. Every time Rabbi Greenberg makes that prayer, it goes unanswered, at least so far. And I don't know what consolation he gets with that prayer, but what I do know is available to him regarding his son, his memories, his thoughts, ephemeral and, ins and insubstantial things. They will never fill him up the way an actual physical hug with his child would. You cannot hug an idea. This sermon emerges from a place of pain within me, a pain at the broken state of our society and the ruptured state of many of our relationships. I know very few people who have not lost friends in recent years. And I don't mean just that they unfriended or were unfriended by some minor acquaintance on Facebook. No longer being exposed to every other person's perfect picture of a rainbow is no tragedy. But I mean dear and enduring bonds weakening or ending because one person can no longer tolerate the other person's political stance or religious stance or outrage or lack of outrage. I find that tragic. Jews who pray with the same siddur, no longer wishing to share a pew or a minion with other Jews with whom they disagree. As if to say the Shema together requires alignment on anything other than that, other than that there is one God and we, Israel, are listening. I find that tragic. But it's becoming common as our commitment to some of our, our ideas and ideals are getting stronger, they're also getting more brittle. And as such, our relationships with some of our dear ones are getting weaker, even convincing us that they were not so dear to begin with. We are hugging ideas, making it harder for us to hug people. And as Rabbi Greenberg would tell you, people are better than any idea. Can we hold our ideas proudly, but more curiously, more lightly? What I'm naming here is a very Jewish idea. Our tradition understands how learning can build confidence, but then lead to arrogance and thus quash curiosity because we think we know everything. It can even quash our humanity and drive us from closeness with others. Here's what the Rambam, Maimonides, the 12th century scholar and philosopher wrote about this. There are some human characteristics with which it is prohibited to take the middle path. Normally he was a person who promoted Hadera Chabenonit, the middle path. But with some things one must keep themselves entirely away. No moderation. Vehu govelev. One of those ideas is arrogance, certainty, my translation being too in love with your own ideas about things. And the Rambam says anyone who is even a little too arrogant in the heart or certain in the head is considered a kofer be'ikar, one who has essentially denied all of Judaism. That is a serious accusation. We're not talking about idolatry or licentiousness or violating Shabbat or eating bologna with white bread and mayonnaise. <laughs> the Rambam is asking us to consider 
that it may be the most un-Jewish stance we can take to be unjustifiably certain, to hold ideas too confidently, too closely. You can be mean, you can be ungenerous, you can violate every ritual act and you're still part of the Jewish family. But once you display true arrogance, you are out. Of this, he was confident. You know, not too confident. <laughs> I want to invite you to lean into this wisdom and to hold your ideas with humility and to know that you changed in order to get to the place you are now, intellectually and spiritually. And so you are liable to again, as all others are with whom you interact. If you want to hold those people in your life and be held by them closely, hold some of your ideas lightly. Listen, we all know that some differences of ideas and among people are intolerable. Some people you do not want to hug, nor do I. But I fear we have made that category too large, thus cutting out both other people and other ideas from our realm of acceptable. It might make for a more confident and comfortable reality, but it's a smaller one, and I think it's a less Jewish one. Now, I'm a rabbi. I live a life of ideas and ideals. I've staked my career on concepts and values and principles refracted through centuries. I organize my, rea my reality by binaries that tell me what is wrong and what is right, what is kosher and what is treif, what is acceptable and what is intolerable. This way of thinking gives my life and all of our lives much needed structure. It helps us navigate through hard decisions, helps determine both what to eat and how to vote, these ideas and ideals are the stepping stones that create a path we walk towards goodness, righteousness, and the continued creation of a just society. And it's also just the case that we humans are enormously complex people. Every person here carries with him or her baggage, both conscious and unconscious, that both shape and warp those mutually inherited ideas. And so, shocker, we disagree on things petty and utterly mundane, such as which is the best baseball team to root for. That's actually not petty whatsoever. That's very significant. <laughs> and on things weighty and profoundly important, such as which is the best way to govern, the most ethical way to fix a city's woes, the most Jewish and modern way to apply ancient sacred texts to contemporary American problems in our zeal to be righteous, which is admirable, I fear that we all sometimes stumble towards self-righteous. We fall back on the familiar tendency to judge others. But as we all know, there's only one judge that matters right now. Aaron Judge. We assume that if that other person over there disagrees on this issue or that politician or this way of doing Jewish or that way of doing American, it means that that person lacks ethics or the ability to see or to think. They become intolerable. We hold our ideas so tightly in, our, in order to try to make the world a perfect place. 
When we do so, it makes it harder to hold people and to be held by them. You might be guided by an idea or a principle, but as Rabbi Greenberg noted, you can't hug one, and if you do hug your ideas, you become an ideologue on the short path to being an absolutist. And once there, fewer people will want to hug you. There's comfort in stasis, I know, but constancy is an illusion. We only think we live in the present tense. There barely is a present tense. The moment we think we grasp the present, we're already in the future, assessing the past. So hold on, holding on to whatever we think or feel in this moment is holding on to a certain type of nothingness. We should indeed have principles and values and try to live by them. But we should remember that flux is constant. And sands are shifting so quickly these days. Think of COVID, this nightmare we have been through and are still in on some level. Absolute orthodoxy articulated by experts one day, such as that we should wipe off groceries because the virus was easily spread with that type of contact, turned on its head self the next day when the experts told us that it was our breathed particles of air that matters most. Nearly every public health official who went on record and every public leader who had made decisions based on their expertise could easily be set up in a split screen that could make one wary of authority, with the left side showing a video or written note naming a firm policy from one day, with the right side showing that same policy countermanded just a few days or weeks later. To me, these are not examples of egg on the face. To me, these are examples of the wisest amongst us, forced to make educated guesses on a preponderance of current opinion and open to change when data changes rather than stubbornly holding on to the last policy statement. How could we possibly have navigated this era had not sufficient world, national, regional, and local leaders been more committed to serving the good than they were in love with their own ideas and their own certainty? They held on to their ideas confidently, but also lightly. And thanks to them, we can hug one another again. William Goldman, the famous screenwriter, once turned heads when he said, nobody knows anything. It's of course a preposterous notion. Lots of people know, not know lots of things. And to be clear, I'm not anti-expertise, nor propounding a sense of overarching relativism where every idea or interpretation of a fact has equal validity. But he was onto something, something shared by Hollywood executives, weather forecasters, and economists, all trying to make educated guesses, all staking their careers on possibilities, and all who sleep better at night if they and their supervisors are willing to hold their ideas confidently but lightly. Golding went on to say, quote, not one person in the entire motion picture field knows for a certainty what's going to work. Every time out, it's a guess. And if you're lucky, an educated one. 
I wish we could all be that honest with ourselves and with others when staking out an opinion, when sharing an idea. I wish we could hold our ideas more lightly because again and again, it would help us hold others more closely. If you're hearing this and thinking that I'm talking just or even mostly about politics, lean in farther. If you think I'm saying you should not be proud of or act out or be an activist for your well-thought-out principles, then I'm not being sufficiently clear. I'm talking about all the ways in which we hold ourselves in relationship to the ideas that organize, shape, limit, and widen our lives. I'm saying we ought to do so with humility and with the expectation that they are not as fixed as we comfortably convince ourselves that they are. Recently, a colleague told me an extremely touching story that relied on his wielding Torah and Judaism's rules and ideas lightly and humbly in order to serve the grander purpose of bringing people together. A woman called the office in distress. Her mother was at the end of her life, already brain dead. And her brother, who was a committed Jew for Jesus, wanted to come up from Florida to have a moment with her mother. Why? To convert her, to save her soul at the last minute. My colleague had no idea what to do. He called a few of his teachers at JTS, the rabbinical school. One of them reminded him of the Jewish notion that once one is brain dead, it is as if the soul has already left the body. Meaning it might be possible for the sake of the tenderness of this moment, to consider her mother to be fully gone and thus worthy of mourning rituals, even though she was technically still alive. The woman met my colleague in the hospital. He remembers telling her, your mother can no longer give permission for him, to him for any deathbed transformation. She will leave this world as a Jew. Let your brother have his moment. And though this was a very traditional rabbi who in nearly every other sphere of his rabbinate would have moved very far away from conversion out of Judaism and would have held back the recitation of mourners Kaddish until a person was buried and until a minion was present, though he held those as precious ideas and regulations, his pastoral insti instinct took over. He sensed that if he could help this woman see her mother as already gone, then there was nothing her brother could do to harm her. The two of them stood in the mother's hospital room. They recited mourner's Kaddish. The woman accepted in that moment her mother's death, however technically premature, and so she could permit her brother to do whatever he wanted to do by her bedside with no rancor, and no anger. In my colleague's words, his stretching of passionately held ideas and ideals served its purpose, and he would be proud to do it again. He held the tradition lightly so that he could let a woman hold her mother and her brother close. He was in good company, at least within our tradition. Think of the moment when the patriarch Jacob dies. Joseph's brothers stand before him and very obviously lie about their father and his wishes that Joseph forgive them for what they did. 
For Joseph, it must have been offensive on every level. As a powerful man representing the law of the land, the story could have been that Joseph stuck to his principles, hugged his precious ideas, and gave his brothers what they deserved. We might well have expected Joseph to react in anger and have his brothers take up residence in his old cell in Pharaoh's dungeon. But that's not what happens. Joseph decides that when it comes to family, there are more important things than being right, no matter how right your ideas may be. In a critical moment in the life of this family, Joseph holds his idea lightly so that he can embrace his brothers closely. And it's interesting to note that in this scene, while his brothers were talking, Joseph was crying. Why? Some people read this plainly. He was a crier. His emotions, emotions were stirred as he imagined the family finally finding some peace. But I prefer the subtle complexity of the interpretation of the Shadal. Shmuel David Luzzato, a 19th century Italian scholar. He says that Yosef was crying because he was torn. He knew in that moment that his brothers were prevaricating. He knew that what they said their father Jacob said was probably something they came up with conveniently themselves to reduce the chances that Joseph would be vengeful. He cried because of the pathos of the moment. Seeing his brothers desperate to win his approbation, he was torn. He saw both sides of the moment. And instead of embracing his own sense of being right, he chose, he chose rather to embrace his brothers. Joseph and his brothers are all of us. We've all been there in intense dynamics within and beyond family. We have to decide what we will say and not say, what idea to grasp tight, what person to grasp tight, when to hold fast, and when and how to permit change in ourselves. Transformations are possible. We want to see them in others, right? Then we must hold ourselves as if we are capable of them as well. Nothing can be more counterproductive than any certainty regarding complex affairs. This is a marvelous notion uttered by Václav Smil, a Czech-Canadian energy scientist and economist and distinguished professor emeritus at University of Manitoba. I'll say it again. Nothing can be more counterproductive than any certainty regarding complex affairs. This is true when thinking through what the world needs to do to calm the climate and protect our one inhabitable planet. This is true when thinking through the best way to solve homelessness or immigration, moving COVID from pandemic to endemic and all other such fraught societal issues. In all cases, curiosity should trump certainty. And in all cases, there may be an inverse relationship between how closely you hold ideas and how closely you hold people. I close with two of the voices whose wisdom animate a lot of my thinking about the world. A pair usually not quoted together. Malcolm Gladwell, 
and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, although I'd like to think they would be friends if they coexisted. Gladwell, one of the most curious people I know, pushes his readers and listeners in the podcast to pry open their mind and try to learn something new about familiar topics. He recently shared this nugget. The great sobering discovery of my middle age is that the list of things we do not know is so much greater than the list of the things that we do. I would add that this applies even to the things we think we know, are sure we know. There's so much about them we have yet to discover. And isn't that part of the wonder of being alive? There are moments in the modern, divided, partisan, always shouting at the loudest volume world that make me think that too many of us believe that we are alive in order to be certain. We are alive to know and have all the answers. I beg to differ, as did the great Rabbi Heschel. Towards the end of Heschel's life, he had a near-fatal heart attack. Afterwards, he said to his student, Rabbi Samuel Dresner, Sam, my first feelings when I came to were not of despair or anger. This is what I meant, he said, when I wrote, I did not ask for success. I did not ask for wisdom, for wisdom or power or fame or certainty. I asked for wonder and you gave it to me. It is wonder that keeps the world alive to us and us alive in this world. It is wonder and true curiosity about the other, including the ideas they hold dear that makes relationship possible even when there is strong and meaningful, meaningful disagreement. It is wonder that makes people with different ideologies and theologies and passions and visions find a way to work together and pray together and learn from the other and make society better. It is wonder that will help you hold the other close, not dogmatism. So dedicate yourself to a year of learning this year, of reconsidering that which you think you know, of holding most closely people and not positions. In 5783 and beyond, hold your ideas lightly. Except this one. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.